Do you have that one piece of clothing you keep going back to, no matter how full your closet is? Having a versatile, high-quality favorite feels great, but having a whole closet of them feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything, from T-shirts and jeans to sweatshirts and jackets, and of course, their legendary best hoodie ever. So you can fill your wardrobe with the pieces that will get you through your spring days. Like the lightweight joggers and pullovers in the French Terry collection, or the rich and polished premium slub crew tee. Whether you're dressing for work, the gym, or happy hour, American Giant makes something that's sure to be your next closet go-to. And it's all made in America and designed to last a lifetime. Find a closet staple for every part of your day at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Promo code STAPLE20. Many waters cannot quench love by Louise Baldwin. Did I not know my old friend John Horton as truthful as he, devoid of imagination? I should have believed that he was romancing or dreaming. He told me of some thanks sentences that happened to him some thirty years ago. He was that time a bachelor living in London, practising in solicitor Bedford. Though he was not a strong man, though neither nervous nor excitable, as I said before, singly in an imaginative. If Hodum holds you fat, you might as be certain it had occurred in a precise manner he stated. If he told you a hundred times he would not vary it in the repetition, this literal and conscious habit of mind made his testimony of value. When he told me a fact I should have believed from any other man, disbelieved from any other man, from, from my friend I was obliged to accept it as truth. During the long vacation, the autumn of 1857, Alden determined to take a few weeks' holiday country. He was such an introvert Londoner. He had not been able to tear himself away from the town or more a few days at a time. For many years passed, but at length he felt the necessary for quick and pure air, and he could not go far to seek them. It's easier then now, now, then, as it is now, now to find lodgings and would meet his requirements, a place of the country yet closer to the town. It was near Wandsworth. A Houghton found what he sought: rooms for single gentlemen in an old farmhouse. He read the advertisements of the lodgings in the paper at a luncheon, and went that very afternoon to see if they answered the tempting description, description given. He had some little difficulty in finding Matterland's farm. It's not easy to find his way through country lanes. That is, his own turn eyes looked precisely alike, with nothing to indicate whether he was taking a right or wrong turning. The railway rail run, now runs shrieking over what was oh, what were the green fields land lanes being transformed into gas-lighted streets. And Matterland's farm, the new brick hat, Red brick house, standing in its high walled garden, had been pulled down long ago. Last time Holton went to look at the old place, it changed beyond recognition. The orchard which he gathered pears and apples during his stay in the farm, 
But now the sight of a public house and dissenting chapel. It's a hot afternoon, early in September, when Horton opened the big iron gates and walked up the path, bordered with Delilahs and hollyhocks, leading to the front door and ring of admittance at Matalan's farm. A bell echoed a distant part of the empty house and died away in the silence, but no one came to answer its summons. As Horton stood waiting, he took the opportunity to thoroughly examine the outside of the house, for it was called, a, though it was called a farm, it had not been built for one, one, it was not been built for one. Originally, it was substantially four story brick house, Queen Anne's period, with five tall slash windows on each floor, and dormer windows in the, on the roof, tiled roof. Front door was approached by a shadowed flight of stone steps. Above the fan lit, lit, projected a penthouse of solidly carved woodwork. On either side were brackets of wrought iron supporting extinguishers that quenched the t- torch of many late returning reveller a century ago. Only the windows to the right and the left of the door had blinds or curtains or betrayed any sign of habitation. The, those are the rooms to be let, I wonder, which is the bedroom, thought my friend as he rang the bell for the second time. Presently he heard within the sound of approaching footsteps. It was a great drawing of bolts, so after a final struggle with a rusty lock, the door was opened by an old woman, a severe and cheerless aspect. Horton was the first to speak. I have called to see the rooms. I have advertised to let it in his house. The old woman eyed him with head to foot, without making any reply. It opened the door wider, nodded to him to enter. He did so and found himself, he found himself a large paved hall lighted with a fanlight over the door and by a high narrow window facing him at the top of a short flight of oak stairs. The air was musty and damp as that of an old church. Hold this side should have a fire in it, said Holden, glancing at the empty rusty gate. Farmers and folks that walk outdoors keep themselves warm without fires, said the old woman sharply. This house was never built for a farm. Why is it called one? inquired Holden. She took over and guide as he opened the door of the sitting room. Because it was one, was the blunt reply. When I was a girl, it's a manor house, and may be called that again, for all I know. For thirty years since, a man named Madeline took it on a lease and farmed the land, and folks forgot the old name and called it Madeline's farm. When did Madeline leave? About two months ago. Why did he go away from a place, nice place like this? I fond of asking questions about the old woman dryly. He went for two good reasons. His lease was up, his family was a big one. Nine children had he had, a girl or two and twenty down to a little lad of four years old. His wife and him sought to do best to take them out to Australia, as there's room for all. They were glad to go, but the oldest Esther, she nearly broke her heart over it. But then she had to leave her sweetheart behind. He's a young man on dairy farm near here, and though he's come he's to follow her out of marrying her in twelve months, she did nothing but mourn, saying as if she was leaving him altogether. Oh, indeed, said Halton. 
who could not readily enter into details about people whom he did not know. This is a sitting room. It's large and airy, and such furniture as it is, it, in it as a man needs by himself. Now show me the bedroom, if you please. Follow me upstairs, sir. The old woman preceded him slowly up the oak staircase and opened the door and back room of the first floor. Then a bedroom. You let is not over the sitting room. No, the front room is mine, and the room next to it is my son's. He's all out all day at his work, but he sleeps here mostly. He keeps him in company in an evening. I'm alone here all day, looking after the place. If you take the rooms, I'll cook for you and wait for you myself. Horton took the look at like the look of the bedroom, it large and airy with little furniture beyond the bed and chest of drawers. It's delicately clean, clean and as a silent as grave. Now a tired man might sleep here. The walls are decorated with old prints of black frames of Rakers, Rake's progress, a marriage of Le Maud. Above the high carved mantelpiece hung an engraving. Official, a famous portrait of Charles I, prancing brown horse. These things are like they were on the walls when the Madelines took the place. They had leave them where they found them, said the old woman. They found the sword too, she added, pointing to a rusty cutlass that hung with a nail by the hand of the head of the bed. But I think they'd gone, done no great harm if they sold it for old iron. Horton took down the weapon and examined it. It's an ordinary cutlass which was worn by the Marines in George the Third Reign, not old enough to be an antique of interest, nor a significant beauty or workmanship to make it artistic value. Artistic value. He placed it and stepped it to the windows and looked into the gardens below. It bounded by high wall enclosing a row of poplars. Beyond lay the open country, visible for miles in the clear air, a sight of to rest and fascinate the eye of a Londoner. Horton made his bargain with the old woman, whom the landlord had put into the house as a caretaker, pending his decision about the disposition of the property. She was allowed to take a lodger of her own profit. As soon as Miss Belt found that the stranger agreed for her, to her terms, she assured him that everything should be comfortably arranged reception by the following Wednesday. Horton arrived at Madeline's farm on the evening of an appointed day, a storm or sunset. Tommy Autumnal Sunset was casting angry glow on the windows of the house of rising filled the air. Immortal sounds of poplars swayed against a background of lurid, lurid sky. Mrs. Belt was expecting an old lodger and promptly opened the door, crowned on her hand. She heard the wheels stopping in the gate. The gate, the driver, the fly, carried Holden's approach into the hall and was paid his fare and drove away, thinking the darkening lanes more cheerful than the glimpse he had inside the Madeline's farm. 
Hilton was fairly pleased with country quarters. The intense quiet of the almost empty house might have made another man melancholy, soothed and rested. In the daytime he wandered about the country, amused himself the garden and orchard. He spent the long evenings alone, reading and smoking in the sitting room. Mr. Belt brought in supper. Mr. Belt brought in supper at nine o'clock, and usually stayed to have a chat with her lodger, and many long stories she related by her neighbours and Madeleine family while she waited upon him at his evening meal. The several cases she told him that Esther Madeleine's sweetheart, Michael Wayne, had come to talk with her about the Matalans, so to bring her a newspaper containing tidings and their ship had reached some point on its long voyage to safety. You see, Pitchell is a sailing vessel, sir. There's no saying how long she'd be take getting to Australia. The nurse news Michael had, she'd got as far as some islands with an outlandish name. He had a letter from Esther posted at a place called Madeira, and now he gives himself no peace till he can hear that the ship safe as far as somewhere, I think he said, in Africa. Could it, would it be the Cape, Miss Belt? That's the name, sir, the Cape, he warrants, all the time for the fear of the storms and shipwrecks. But I tell him the well's the place, the sea's wider than, than all, are very likely than Lately, when chimney pots is flying about our heads, a girl, the pitcher's lying, be calm somewhere. And he takes up my foot and turns it against me. Yes, he says. And when it's dead calm, then uh, we're here on shore. The ship may be sinking the storm, but Esther's beginning to be drowned. Magui must be a very nervous young man. That's where it is, sir. Uh, I tell him when he follows the Madelands, it's a good job he leaves no one behind that they weren't around him. The time, same as he weren't after Vesta. In the middle of October, the Holton had been a month at the farm. The weather was now cold and wet. He began to think of time he returned to his sug. London home for the autumn rain made everything in Madeline's farm damp and mouldy. In a down had blown half a gale all day, a rain had fallen in torrents, keeping him like a prisoner, keeping prison doors. He occupied himself in writing letters and reading some legal documents. The clerk had brought him, the clerk had brought him out, out to him. A time passed rapidly. Indeed, the evening flew by quickly. He had no idea it was nine o'clock when Mrs. Belt entered the room and to lay the cloth for supper. It's a cheerful raining now, sir. She said, as he poked the fire into a bla- cheerful blaze. A good job, too, for Michael Wynne brings me word. Waddles the waddle is a river in London, risen fearfully since morning, and is out of places more than it's been for years. But there's a full moon tonight, so well, no one need walk into water unless they mind to. Horton's head was too full of knotty legal point to pay much heed to Miss Belt, and the old woman, seeing that he was not in the mood for conversation, said nothing further. At half past ten, she brought her lodger some spirits of hot water, his bedroom candle, and wished him good night. 
Paulson sat reading for some time and made it an entry to his diary concerning a day which he was absolutely nothing to record. Lighted a candle and went upstairs. I'm familiar with the precise order of each trifling circumstances. Whereas friends so often told me night events of the night never Never with the slightest addition or omission in telling is that his habit, last thing at night, to draw up the blinds, he looked out the window, and lo, the window moon was full, the clouds not yet dispensed, that is, the night was fearful, fitful, obscure. It's twenty minutes to twelve, he extinguished the candle by his bedside. Everything was preposterous for rest. He was weary, and the house profoundly silent. The rain had stopped, the wind fell to sigh. Fullness aside, it seemed to him that as soon as his head rested, pressed the pillow, he sank in a dreamless slumber. Shortly after two o'clock, Hilton woke suddenly passing instantaneously from deep sleep to possession every facility in a heightened degree an insupportable sense of fear weighing upon him like a thousand nightmares he started up and looked around him perspiration poured from his brow and his heart beat to suffocation he was convinced he had been wakened by some strange and terrible noise and thrilled through the depths of sleep he dreaded a repetition of it inexpressibly. The room was flooded with moonlight, steaming through the narrow windows, lying like sheets of molded silver on the floor, a poplars of golden cast tremendous shadows on the ceiling. And then Houghton heard through the silence of the house a sound, but not a moan or the wind, not a rustling of trees, nor any sound he'd heard before. Clear and distinct, as though it was in the room with him, he heard a voice of weeping, lamentation, you mourn in human sorrow in the eye. So it seemed to him as though he listened to the mourning of a lost soul. He leaped up to struck a match and then lighted, lighted the candle, and seeing the cutlass that hung by the bed, and locked the doors, Listened, opened it to listen. So far as all, so far as all ordinary sounds were concerned, the house was deep silent as death. The moonlight steamed through the staircase window and flood on pale light. But the earthly sound of weeping, thrilling for the heart and soul, came from the world below. Horton walked downstairs to the landing at the top of the fire's flight. There was a swell of his step. A woman was seated, a bowed head, with her face hidden in her hands, rocking to and fro, in extremity of grief. The moonlight fell on her. He saw that she only partly clothed, and her dark hair lay in confusion on her bare shoulders. Who are you, and what is the matter with you? said Holden. His trembling voice echoed in the silent house, which he neither stared nor spoke, but a bait, nor bait or weeping, slowly descended with a moonlight kiss staircase. There was but four steps between him and the woman. A mortal fear was growing upon him. Speak of your living being, he cried. The figure rose its forehead, turned and faced him for a moment, and seemed eternity on the point of the cutlass. Houghton and Voluntary presented as of impregnable form guided up the blade of the girl weapon. A cold wave seemed to break over him. He fell in a dread faint on the stairs. 
How long he remained insensible he could not tell. When he came to himself, he opened his eyes. The moon had set and had groped his way in the darkness to his room. The candle had burned itself out. When Alton came down to breakfast, he looked as though he'd been ill for a month. His hands jumbled like a drunken's. And for any other time, Miss Belt would have had struck, been struck by his appearance. This morning, she was too much excited by some bad news. She heard by no to notice whether his lodger was looking well or ill. Houghton asked her how she had slept, or if she had heard, heard the terrible sounds that wakened him. It seemed impossible he, she should not have heard his heavy fall on the stairs. Mr. B- Mrs. Belt replied with some astonishment to her luggage concern, her welfare. He never had a better night. It was so quiet after wind fell. But you, you did. But did your son think the house was quiet? Did you sleep too? Asked Mr. Holton. With eagerness, Miss Belt was yearning to impact part of the new bad news to a lodger, and remarking that she had ever, something else to do. I asked folks how to, they slept at nights. On nights, she said that a neighbour had just told her that Michael Wynne had fallen into Wedlaw during the night. No one knew how, and had drowned, and they'll carry his body back home then. What a, what a terrible blow to his sweetheart, said Holton, greatly shot. Aye, there's a pretty face of, the, of news to send her when she's expecting to see poor Michael himself soon. Miss Belt, have you any portrait of Esther Motherland you would show me? I heard a girl's name so often, I'm curious to know what she's like. And the old woman retired to hunt among her treasures of a small photograph of grass. Dogs and Esther had given her before she went away. Presently, Miss Belt returned, polishing the picture with her apron. It's but a floor affair, sir, taking a cavern, a common. Common yet? It's like, like taking a cavern on, on the common, yet it's like a girl. It's very like. It was a mis- miserable production, a cheap and early effort of photography. Holton rose from the table, the picture in the hand, examined it at the, it at the window. It was surrounded by the thin brass frame. He recognised the faces of all, face of all the faces had dismayed him. The face that beheld him in the vision of the preceding night. He suppressed a groan and turned from the window with a face so white as he headed the picture and the picture back to Mrs. Belt. She said, You're not feeling well this morning, sir. No, I'm feeling very ill. I must get back to the town today or to me to be near my own doctor. You shall not be you shall be, be no loser for my leaving so so suddenly. But I'm going if I'm going to be ill, I'll be best at my own home. Wilton could not have stayed another night in Madeleine's farm to save his life. He was in his office at Bed- Bedford Row by noon. His clerk's fault. He looked ten years older for his visit to the country. A little more than three weeks after Hilton returned to the town, when his nerves were beginning to recover their accustomed tone, his tension was suspectly recalled, the apparent subject of the apparition that he had seen. He read all the newspapers that the mail... that... The mail from the Cape had brought news. The wreck of the sailing vessel Petro, bound to Australia, lost all on board a violent storm. Okay. Off the coast, shortly after the steamer left for England, by a careful comparison of dates, 
allowing for variation of time. Conviction was forced upon John Horton. The ill-fated ship foundered. At the very hour, the blail held the wraith of Esther Matterland. She and her lover, divided by thousands of miles, both perished by drowning at the same time. Michael went in the little river, a home, Esther Hanson, Matterland, the depths of the distant ocean.